couple of friends this week, and we were lamenting the state of local politics. There was one politician in particular who on an issue important not only to our area, but the state of North Carolina, <coughs> voted for the issue in committee, voted for it on the floor, then voted against it on the floor, and throughout the week was trying to explain why he was for it then and against it now, but also kind of for it, but yet also, and back and forth and back and forth, and we've seen this play out a number of times, and we typically call that function there for our political friends uh, flip-flopping, right? You're familiar with that. Well, you said this today, but however many years ago you said the exact opposite of this, so which one do you really believe? Now, uh, of course, it's mission month here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, and last week we talked about mission in the New Testament, and for an awful lot of believers who are familiar with missions in the Bible, they would might be tempted to say that God is a flip-flopper. Of course, we've read the New Testament. Of course, he cares about missions. There are so many missionaries throughout the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James and others. In fact, there's really a whole book, the book of Acts, which is largely about missions in the early church in the early decades after Christ's ascension. God is for it. But some of those people, if they have only kind of a light familiarity with the Old Testament, might go, yeah, but that's not the way that God was in the Old Testament. In fact, God was insular in the Old Testament. He was really only about Israel. And that before the birth of Jesus, God was an ethnocentric God, only concerned about one nation. What we're going to talk about this morning is one of my favorite ideas in Mission Month, which is that even a cursory examination of the Old Testament reveals that God has always worked out his plan to redeem the nations through the work of his people and the promise of his son. The mission of God, as we've defined it over the last few weeks, has been this. God has always employed a chosen people to invite his image bearers into his kingdom. And the point of this morning's sermon is simply that that is not exclusively a New Testament concept, that rather God's unwavering commitment to redeem the nations is proven throughout the Bible. God's unwavering commitment to redeem the nations is not simply a New Testament idea. It's something that you see in the very beginning of this book, and it runs through all 66 books until we get to the very end. God's unwavering commitment to redeem the nations is proven throughout the Bible. <coughs> Let me pray for us, and then we'll make a few observations about what the Old Testament says about the mission of God. Father, help us to understand your character as unflinching and unwavering. To know that your plan to redeem the nations stretches before you even built the earth, and that you have been committed to it every second of every day of history. Help us to see how you have wired the faithful to participate in your great work of redemption. Let us live so joyfully and passionately and enthusiastically on mission for you and from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've summarized what I think the Old Testament has to say about mission into four points. The first is this. Mission is grounded in God's plan of redemption. 
inaugurated immediately after the fall. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If we're picking, what does the Bible say about mission? You might be tempted first to go to Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission. That's a great passage to go to, or even Acts chapter 1, where we're told that the disciples have been given the commission to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Those are clips that will appear on God's missionary highlight reel. But if we're looking for where it starts, the very beginning, you might argue that it starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. Of course, you know the story. The serpent has appeared to Eve and then to Adam in the garden, and they have both eaten the fruit that they were supposed not to eat. And in that moment, they become what we call theologically here, fallen. They have separated themselves from God. And God issues this stern warning, starting in verse 14, to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, growing up in Ohio, I remember in the entirety of my youth seeing one snake. And now we have like half a dozen a year at my house. And I am absolutely petrified of them. And I have a very uh, Genesis 3:14 like response. Yes, you're fast, and you might bite me, but you eat the dust of the earth. It's terribly theological, my angst against the snakes here. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What offspring are we talking about here? It's fair to say that we're not just talking about Cain and Abel and the other children that Eve would bear. We're talking about offspring well down the line. We have very clearly right here in Genesis 3.15, a messianic prophecy, the foretelling of one who would come from the line of Adam and Eve, who we know is Jesus Christ. Enmity between the devil and the offspring of Eve, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here, only three chapters in to the thousands that are compiled together in this great book, we already have the beginnings of a plan for God to combat the results of the fall. He is going to send one to war against the evil agent who tempted Adam and Eve to walk away from what God had commanded. Only three chapters in. Um, some of you like basketball because of my uh, great athletic prowess and towering height. I also enjoy watching a little basketball. And if you were uh, flipping through the channels this week, I'm sure you saw the Toronto Raptors and the Golden State Warriors uh, playing it out in the NBA Finals. I became this week a fan of the Toronto Raptors. I really enjoyed watching Kawhi Leonard play. It was outstanding, but I have never watched a Toronto Raptors game before in my life, right? Total bandwagon fan. And I'm sure somewhere in that arena, somebody had shelled out the money who has watched the Toronto Raptors from the very beginning, right? They have been there through all of the excruciatingly bad years. They sat through loss after loss after loss, as this was historically one of the worst franchises in NBA history. I really struggle thinking about the endurance of a fan like that, somebody who might root for the Red Sox until a few years ago, or the Chicago Cubs 
the greatest losers of the 20th century. The team, not the fans, right? And how they have stuck with them through thick and through thin. Here's the point that I'm trying to make here about Genesis chapter 3. God is not a fair-weather fan who comes into his affirmation of missions only after the incarnation of Jesus. God has been there from the beginning. He has always been a fan of missions. This has always been his plan. He is the engineer and the architect and the originator of the plan to redeem humanity back to himself. And it starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. He is going to send one, a redeemer, to war against those who are evil. Secondly, God's mission has always been global. It's not only ancient, it's global. The passage that we just read, Genesis chapter 12, is a great example of the fact that God's mission is global. Now the Lord said to Abram, we read, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. We know that he tells him later on in 15, 17, 21, 22, you'll have so many children that will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, right? And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And we know that's exactly what Israel has done. Not only by being a light to the nations and the works that have come from those who are sons of Abraham, but we also get one son of Abraham in particular who has blessed all of us, and that's Jesus Christ. But it's verse 3 where I want to hunker down here to prove it's a global plan. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, who? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. It is really difficult to argue that Israel was insular and that God was ethnocentric in an exclusive way only about Israel. When you read here from the very beginning, God's plan is to reach all the families of the earth, not just Israel. Turn for another moment to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah, of course, is a long book, but well worth your time. If you have limited yourself devotionally to only reading the same three or four books over and over again, you're a Psalms reader, you're a Proverbs reader, you're a Philippians reader, whatever it is that your particular books are, let me encourage you to expand your repertoire and to invest yourself in reading Isaiah. Isaiah 66 gives us another beautiful picture of the global program of God in redemption. Starting in verse 18, the prophecy comes through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, which was, for the ancient Near Eastern world, often thought of as the furthest point away on the map. It's before the Atlantic Ocean started and headed into what many of them thought was oblivion. To pool and to lewd and to draw the boat to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord 
on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries into my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them I will also take for priests, for Levites, says the Lord. From all the nations, the Lord prophesies he will draw a chosen people. Walt Kaiser, in a very helpful little book, a great Old Testament scholar, writes, Mission in the Old Testament, Israel is a light to the nations. Genesis 12, 3, and similar passages should once again be seen for what it is and what it has always been in the discussion of mission. A divine program to glorify himself by bringing salvation to all on planet Earth. Indeed, here's where missions really begins. Here is the first great commission mandate of the Bible. It is this thesis that dominates the strategy, the theology, and the mission of the Old Testament. God has a plan from the very beginning that affects the entirety of the earth. Thirdly, the mission of God was integral to Israel's national identity. It's who they were back in Exodus chapter 19, and it's worth seeing this. I'm asking you to flip a lot, I know. But I need you to see that I'm not making this up. This is, in fact, exactly how the Old Testament describes our God and those who follow him. Exodus chapter 19. The people have gathered around Sinai. It is right before the giving of the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, where Moses will relay to the people exactly what God requires from them under this particular covenant. And in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 4, we find these words. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests. The responsibility of the priest in the Old Testament was generically to serve as an intermediary between God and the people. And what Moses says here, as relayed from God to the nation of Israel is, the whole nation, our whole entire corpus, is going to be like priests to the world. We will serve as the intermediaries between God and everyone else on the earth, explaining to them who he is and what he's commanded from them. The whole nation, a missionary nation, representing God before all the ends of the earth. It's integral to their identity. Uh, I, I think it would be very easy if I were describing to you superheroes that you could guess who I'm talking about, right? So if I said I'm talking about, and maybe I'm going to need the help of some younger in here, uh, there's a teenage kid. He wears a red and blue suit. He shoots webs out of his... Who am I talking about? Spider-Man. Uh, there's a tall, brooding man in a black suit, and a light shines off the top of the building, and it who are we talking about? Batman. Uh, there's a guy, blue suit, red cape, underwear on the outside of his pants. <laughs> Who are we talking about? 
Superman. So even very early on, we know from just a couple of words, right? Uh, faster than a speeding bullet, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. With only just a few words, we know exactly who you're talking about because those descriptors are essential. They're integral to their identity. When you think about Israel, you should think mission. So when I say a holy people chosen before the Lord, able to leap tall missions in a single generation, you would go, oh, Israel, I know exactly who you're talking about. Because that's exactly how they're described here in Exodus chapter 19, a nation of priests representing God before the entirety of the earth. Fourthly, even the New Testament authors recognize the mission of God in the Old Testament. Even New Testament authors recognize the mission of God in the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn over just quickly to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I don't know that there's a more enthusiastic evangelist or missionary in the entirety of the New Testament than Paul. And Paul, who was steeped in Jewish tradition, had been educated in Jewish schools and was intimately familiar with every corner of what we call the Old Testament, but they called the Tanakh, would have seen exactly what his commission was. And he says here in Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Paul already says here, that this mission to which I am employed wasn't set out just yesterday. It's set out by the prophets. We've seen it for a long, long time. It's about his son, who descended from David according to flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among Jews only. No. Among who? All the nations. All the nations. In fact, if we had more time, we would find that there are these prophecies that are made in the book of Isaiah about a servant who would come, this suffering servant, the great messianic leader who would rescue Israel, the one who would bring glory and peace who would relent from calamity over all the nations on the earth. And in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is describing what it is that he's been called to do, he quotes those passages, those suffering servant passages, those messianic prophecies, and applies them as commands for himself. We have been sent as representatives to all the nations. It's an ancient promise. Genesis 3. It applies to the entirety of the earth. It was integral to Israel's identity. And even the New Testament authors recognized that it was an ancient, ancient promise. There could be no mistaking, Kaiser continues, where Paul got his marching orders. They came from the Old Testament. The case for evangelizing the Gentiles had not been recently devised a switch in the plan of God, but had always been the long-term commitment of the living God. When Paul prayed about his work, where he would go and who he would minister to and how he would do it and what city he would go to and what he would say, he prayed to a missionary God and a God that he knew from his time in the Old Testament. Now, what does all of that say about who God is 
What does that say about who God is first? The mission of God is grounded in the character of God. The mission of God is grounded in the character of God. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. And if you can't turn there, I'll just read it to you. You know the story of Jonah. It's okay for you to go home and throw away most of your children's Bibles because almost all of them get it wrong. Jonah is called in chapter 1 to go to Nineveh, the capital of the evil empire known as Assyria. And he's told to tell the people that unless they repent, God will rain calamity down upon them. And instead of going to them, he heads in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish, the ends of the earth. So he's swallowed by a fish, he mourns in the fish, the fish yaks him up on the shore, and relenting a little bit, he makes his way to Nineveh. We're told that to do the job in Nineveh is a three days journey. He only does it for a day. There is no offer of repentance in his message. He just says, God hates you. He's going to nuke you any moment now. And miraculously, even with that kind of maybe sort of lame evangelistic presentation, the people turn out in mass, even the king of the city, and says, we repent of what we have done, and we want to please the Lord of this man from Israel. And you would think, at least in part, maybe this will make Jonah happy, right? Jonah is one of the most successful evangelists in the Old Testament. He has told them, you must repent or you will die. And he didn't even do a very good job. And still, thousands repented to follow the one true living God. If I went into the parking lot at Harris Teeter, like on a Sunday afternoon, and it's packed full of cars because everybody's trying to get their you know, burgers and dogs to please dads this afternoon, and I said, turn or burn. And all of a sudden, thousands of people just started attending our church. I think I'd be pretty excited about that, right? Uh, we're going to have to open a wall up, but we'll make a plan. Instead, this is how Jonah reacts. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. He didn't like the Assyrians. In fact, he hated them so much, he thought they deserved whatever wrath God would rain down upon them. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? which is maybe in great Old Testament Hebraism. Of, uh, uh, check yourself, right? Why in the world are you so... How could you hate them so much? And then that principle is illustrated through the story of the plant. You're familiar with this, I know. But when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he knows exactly the fruit that can be reaped from what it is that he's planted because he knows the character of God. God sent him why? Not out of curiosity, not out of combativeness, not in some perfunctory sense. God did this because he is a missionary God. You are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That's who he is. He's a God who has message. Some of you are familiar with 
centrifugal force. Centrifugal force. When I was in high school, uh, one of the big deals in Clark County, Ohio, was the annual Clark County Fair. And uh, we thought it was a big deal. Uh, I, you know, of course, having been to big cities now, realized that, you know, eight pigs and a whirligate are not like a really big deal, but it was a really big deal to us. And they had this ride, and of course, they've got all the rides, and, you know, you sign the waiver because it's going to snap your neck, and you're going to, you know, whatever. But there was one ride in particular that I was afraid of. I could do almost anything except this one, this one ride. You walked in to a circular room with no roof, and the walls were maybe seven feet tall. And you'd walk in, and you would just stand up against the wall. And then the room would start spinning like this, faster and faster and faster and faster. And you say, oh, that's a pretty lame ride. And then, literally, the floor fell out. Did you ever see one of these? And the floor would fall away, and the centrifugal force, this force pushing out from the center, would hold you on the wall. I was thinner in high school <laughs> and was still afraid that my fat tail was going to fall through the empty floor here. Whatever I had learned about physics had been meager, about centrifugal force, maybe it would hold me. I, there's no way I'm getting on it today, right? We have a God who, by character, is not only centripetal, pushing the holiness of his agenda inward on his people, but is also centrifugal, right? His message, his holiness, his glory is always being pushed out from the center. It's who he is. And we understand his message and his mission rightly only if we understand that aspect of his nature. God's work is centrifugal by its very character, pushing outward all the time. It's who he is. God is a missionary God. Secondly, God is a going God who equips a going people. He's a going God who equips a going people. I think we've all had a boss at one point or another in our lives who would tell us to do things that they themselves would not do, right? Uh, the dirtiest job, the lowest man on the totem pole always had to take care of. Um, somebody has to reach their hand into the toilet and put out clumps of toilet paper, and well, no, Paula volunteered for that. I would never ask her to do it. We've all had bosses like that. You could, if you weren't careful, think that the God of the Old Testament is the God who sends people to do his work for him, but isn't ultimately responsible enough to do it for himself. But it's in the middle of the Old Testament we find a promise. In Isaiah chapter 7, that God is going to send one named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It's interesting, in the opening chapter of Matthew, when we're talking about Jesus' genealogy and his parents, what's the promise made in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the very end of the book, in a passage that we saw last week, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Here is Jesus in Matthew 28, fulfilling that promise restated in Matthew 1. God is with us. Stretches all the way back into the times of Isaiah. God is a going God. And Jesus is the proof. 
I remember having this discussion with a pastor uh, at the church that I worked at before coming here to Rocky Mount Bible. And we were talking about something called incarnational theology. Incarnational theology. You know, the incarnation is the big word that we use for Jesus, who is God, taking on human flesh, incarnating. That is, bearing flesh here on the earth. And incarnational theology usually revolves around a discussion about the kinds of people that Jesus ministered to. That Jesus was unafraid of going not only to the rich and the powerful and the elite, but also to the poor and the dirty and the sinful and the sick. He not only ate with the wealthy rulers over the region, he also ate with the poor and prostitutes and the leprous and the like. And the pastor was making the argument that we had made far too much of incarnational theology that, in fact, all of those passages where Jesus eats with the poor and the sick and the prostitutes and tax collectors, that we had made far, far too much of that. Well, I think his argument was asinine. But more importantly, whatever Jesus does here, whoever he eats with, whoever he interacts with, doesn't negate the fact that he was in heaven, that he knew exactly like Isaiah chapter 6 says, what it is to have angels fly around morning, noon, and night crying out, holy, 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 and still took on flesh and came to this earth. I, I read a story a couple of years ago about a battle that was uh, fought in a desert, and uh, there had been so many soldiers who died that uh, the commander said he could reach the depth of one hand into the sand and it was just filled with blood. All the sand had turned brown and black with all the blood that had been shed there on the battlefield. Jesus takes on human flesh and lands his feet on this dirty ball we call earth infused as far down to the core with all of our rebellion and all of our sin and all of our waywardness and lives with us for nearly 40 years. Jesus is the kind of boss who does, to a superlative degree, exactly that which he commands his disciples to do. Because it's who he is. A compassionate God, full of mercy, patient to a divine degree, ready eager to relent of calamity for those who would repent. This is the God that we serve. What does this mean for you? Two things. Be consistent when talking about God. That's how you would fill in that first blank. Be consistent when talking about God. Help people understand that his loving plan of redemption goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. I know if you spend any amount of time with anyone who is contemplating the faith, at some point, you're going to hear this argument. Well, I really like Jesus, but that God of the Old Testament, ooh, totally different guy, right? Just give me some of that New Testament God and leave the Old Testament God behind. And here, bearing the knowledge that you now have, you can tell them, oh, no, you don't understand. Our God has always been a loving God. He has always been a compassionate God. He has always recognized our plight and has always had a divine plan to redeem the entirety of the earth back to himself. Our God is a God of all the nations. We see that from the very beginning of the Bible. Secondly, God is a going God. He's a going God. 
Are you a going disciple? To whom are you going? To whom are you going? We've spent already a fair amount of time in Sunday school talking about strategies and tactics in evangelism. And we've spent a fair amount of time already here in the month of June thinking about missions and what the Bible has to say about that. And your knowledge of the theology of the Bible maybe has grown. And your awareness of who you are as an evangelist may have sprouted a whole host of thoughts about strategies and statistics and tactics. And, and none of that matters if there is no one with whom you are interacting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> if there is not someone to share the good news with, to whom are you going? If you walk away from this month that we will spend together examining what the Old Testament has to say, what the New Testament has to say, the heart behind missions, working through the books and doing all these things. But the only thing you really take away is, you know, this person has been on my heart and on my mind. I, I, I'm going to talk to them. I, I'm going to take them down to Barley and Burger and get them some, some of those great sweet potato fries and see how they're doing and catch up, and maybe we can talk about faith. If that's all you walk away with, a renewed passion to love someone well, chiefly through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then Mission Month is a win. Let's not get so involved in the academic minutiae in the trees that we forget the forest of the mission of God. He's a going God. He's called us to go. Let's take all these things that we know and use them. Father, help us to find obedience a wonderful thing and help us to be reminded of your character consistent as it is from Genesis to Revelation. Help us to follow you, confident in who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. In Jesus' name, amen.